0: You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. I hope we are all having a happy and productive start to the year so far. Before I introduce our guest for this episode, Four quick housekeeping items. Firstly, if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. We release episodes every Monday morning, Australian Eastern Standard Time. That is Sunday afternoon for the Yanks and Sunday evening for the Brits. So please make sure you subscribe to or follow the podcast, depending on which app you use to ensure that you never miss a new episode. We currently have guests booked up until the end of March, which means every Monday morning we will be releasing. It is an exciting position to be in, and please do make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of those conversations. It is getting hot in here, ladies and gentlemen. Secondly, we have a new website domain, thejspod.com. This is much shorter and easier to say than using my whole name, josephnoelwalker.com. So for episodes, show notes, transcripts, the whole shebang, you can now go to thejspod.com to find them. Speaking of transcripts, thirdly, we have transcripts available for new episodes going forward. They are not yet available Available for historic episodes, but we may get there in time. But certainly for every new episode going forward, you'll be able to find the transcript on the episode page at thejspod.com. Fourthly and finally, if you DM me a screenshot of a rating slash review of the podcast on iTunes, I will send you a collector's edition Jolly Swagman podcast bottle opener. So DM me at Twitter. My handle is at Joseph N. Walker, and we will arrange to send you out a bottle opener. I should probably cap this in case we get an influx of DMs, so I will send out bottle openers to the first 50 people who DM me. And now to introduce this episode. I do not know what I may appear to the world, wrote Isaac Newton, but to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself in now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. My guest has helped humanity to glimpse a portion of that great ocean. Frank Wilczek won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2004 for the discovery of asymptotic freedom in the Theory of the Strong Interaction. In this conversation, Frank and I don't directly discuss the work that won him the Nobel Prize. He has discussed it in a million other interviews, so allow me to paraphrase it here so that you have some context heading into the conversation. Physicists like to systematise. One way they systematise is by trying to discover the basic building blocks of matter. Another way is to find out the forces that act between those building blocks. In the case of matter, physicists were able to divide matter up into atoms, and the atoms into nuclei and electrons, and then the nuclei into protons and neutrons. And by smashing protons, or protons and electrons together, particle physicists discovered leptons and quarks, with quarks being, as far as we know, the smallest particle of all. As physicists were busy reducing matter to its tiniest components, they were uncovering the four fundamental forces that acted between those tiny components. Before the 20th century, we knew about two of these forces, because they were the two that were macroscopically visible, the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force. In the 20th century, when physicists started prying into the interiors of atoms, they discovered the other two forces. A weak force, which is responsible for the radioactive decay of atoms, and a strong force that holds the atomic nucleus together. Until Frank Wilczek entered the scene, physicists had observed something strange about the strong force, which not only binds together protons and neutrons, but also the quarks that make them up. The strong force became weaker at high energies or at shorter distances, meaning that the three quarks within a proton can sometimes appear to dance around each other freely. This was unexpected because if you looked to the other forces for reference, the opposite happens. The gravitational forces get stronger at shorter distances, so do electromagnetic forces. And indeed, the strong force is so powerful that no free quarks have ever been observed. So, how to resolve this conundrum? Well, as a young graduate student at Princeton, Frank, working with another physicist, David Gross, found a theory to reconcile these basic principles and the strange observation. Together, they came up with a theory postulating that when quarks come really close to one another, the attraction abates and they behave like free particles. This is called asymptotic freedom. Frank says that he remembers saying to David... If the experiments bear this out, we'll get the Nobel Prize. They did the calculations in the winter of 1972, and they published in the spring. That summer, Frank went to his first ever conference, a small gathering of physicists, and Richard Feynman was there, the Richard Feynman, and he talked about Frank's work, calling it really important. Frank was just 21 years old at the time. The rest, of course, was scientific history. But it also turns out, for reasons that I have no ability to understand, that asymptotic freedom is an important foundation stone for our ability to construct a grand unified theory, because it showed that the electromagnetic, weak, and strong forces have much in common and are perhaps different aspects of a single force. Now, Beyond all of this, beyond the work that won Frank the Nobel Prize, he is responsible for a plethora of other scientific contributions, from particles, or hypothetical particles like axions and enions, to time crystals. He is also the author of many brilliant books, including A Beautiful Question and, most recently, Fundamentals 10 Keys to Reality. In this wide ranging conversation, Frank and I discuss his childhood and upbringing, how you can know whether you really know something, Machine learning, the power of words, humility versus self-respect, living in Einstein's house, which Frank did for almost a decade, and much, much more. Now, I apologize if the audio at times gets a little bit shitty. What happened was Frank was recording himself on his iPhone, but when in the second half of the interview he starts gesticulating excitedly, as he's, as he's explaining concepts in physics to me, the distance of the phone to his mouth begins to fluctuate, and that results in some variable audio. Here's what you should do when you get to one of those parts. Firstly, let out a deep sigh. Second, forgive me. Third, try not to get distracted because the content is sublime. And fourthly, please listen through because it passes, and we return to good audio quick smart. So without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the very smart and very wise, Frank Wilczek. Frank Wilczek, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, so to speak. (laughs) Frank, your earliest memory involves a coffee percolator. Take me back to that.
0: Oh, yes. Well, it was when I was a small child and uh, I don't know exactly when it was, but but I, I suspect it was when I was either two or Maybe three or maybe one. But <laughs> uh, it was certainly uh, when it was a pre-verbal memory. So maybe it was uh, one. I don't know. But anyway, it's it's all in images. And I remember uh, my my parents had a coffee percolator, which was a thing for percolating coffee, and I don't think they still exist. <laughs> and it had uh, seven large pieces. That you could take it apart and put it back together, and I just remember uh, I was on the floor in the kitchen. I can remember it you know, I can call the image t- to mind <laughs> still to this day, very clearly uh, and i suddenly it suddenly occurred to me that this was something in the outside world that that uh, that 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 could be manipulated. That that wasn't me somehow. It was, and not, and and also not, but yet somehow not entirely out of my control. And so, uh, I started to put take it apart and put it back together. I could see that that uh, it had, yeah, you know, uh, it had a structure, and you could take it apart and and uh i guess fortunately there was all, mo- more or less only one way you could put it together right they, the pieces only fit in one way so i so i was able to pr- uh to practice uh, or i felt the need to just take it apart and put it back together and understand uh that this thing which you normally saw on the outside also had an inside and then that that different things could fit together, and if you took them apart and put them back together, they would still fit. And things, things like that. it was a very uh, it was a, it was a spiritual experience somehow <laughs> that uh, I somehow uh, realized things about the real the physical world that I didn't realize before all at once. <laughs> yeah.
1: do you have a sense of when, as a kid, you first knew you were smart?
0: Well, uh I think the really, you know, my mother would say all kinds of things, but but I didn't didn't really give much weight to that. <laughs> but but really when I went to school, uh I found that things came very easily to me. And so that I sort of took for granted. I didn't think that okay, that means you're smart or anything. But just that's that's the way it was. And uh, and seeing things that took other kids longer, I I could absorb faster. But then uh, it really came to a head, so to speak, when I was in the first grade and they started giving us tests and uh, to see and and you know they they. Called in my parents and said, "Oh, you, you got to do something, or <laughs> or you should know." <laughs> or and, and I got wind of it, and they changed my class from one class to another. You know, uh, I was kind of uh, young for my grade, so that but they put me into the uh, into the class for older kids, and that and then I skipped grades and so on. so yeah, so that that and and you know at that point, I knew that was. It was a little bit different. I was a little bit different than uh,
1: than most of the kids around. But tell me about your parents.
0: Well, my parents were uh, second-generation Americans. Their parents came from Europe. Uh, my father's family came from uh, Poland, different parts of Poland. My mother's family came from a small region. Close by in Italy, although my grandparents didn't know each other in Italy, they met in the states. Uh, we, uh, and uh, but they were they were uh, they they grew up in the Depression. My parents and with with very limited resources, uh, my father quit high school in in order to support the family, but but he. He worked as a kind of uh, technician, radio and TV repairman in the very early days of television, and uh, he was a very bright guy, but but not very well educated. And and uh, when I when I was uh, going to school, so was he. He was taking night classes and learning calculus and sort of uh, locked, looked at his books and, and I was sort of very interested in that and and. Uh, very also very intrigued because he brought all these broken radios and little experimental televisions with two inch diagonal screens home and uh, then um and my mother was uh i i like to think one of the happiest people I've ever known she was very joyful she uh she did graduate from high school and did very well but but uh but, you know, it, she was very much embedded in the culture of the time when the expectations are she would get married and, and keep a home, and, have, and that's what she did. Uh, they, uh, but she, yeah, as I said, she, I think she was about the happiest person I've known well. She would, uh, she would go around the house singing a lot, well oh, well all day really <laughs> singing and she had quite a good voice, not trained but quite a good voice and just and it was very 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 supportive uh, very uh, my father was a little bit distant but of course uh, also supportive in an abstract way uh, in uh, they that we spoke only English at home because their languages were different uh, what else can I say we didn't have a lot of money, but we were certainly not poor, and I never thought of myself as uh, deprived. We never had to worry about getting fed or anything of that sort. Uh, but but uh, the, we certainly didn't have luxuries. There weren't a lot of books around the house either. Or, or uh, At one point, I wanted to play the piano, but our apartment was too small for that. We couldn't really do it. Or, uh, but, uh, yeah, and we we lived in a very vibrant neighborhood. That I guess that was also very important. We lived in a vibrant neighborhood, really full of people like my parents in a broad sense, immigrant children of immigrants, second generations, people who were aspiring, you know, aspiring that their their kids would mm. take go to the next level. Mm. So that that was the kind of culture I was embedded in 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 New York City.
1: All right. Leaping ahead to 2004, can you describe what it was like telling your parents that you'd won the Nobel Prize? Well, it was a... Knick- they must have been so proud. Uh,
0: they um, were. <laughs> uh, but the, the circumstances were, however, <laughs> maybe not the happiest. Uh, well, they they were... I mean, there's a little glitch on the way, let me tell. It's a funny story that... Uh, so uh, the Nobel Prize was announced at... Uh, 6 A.M. but they called me earlier, actually. They called about 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and I was in the shower at the time, so I came out of... I was... And my wife just... I didn't hear the phone ring. My wife brought this... The, our mobile phone is here. Someone's calling. Sounds like a Swedish accent. You know, I mean, it's not entirely a surprise. <laughs> and... Uh, but I, so, of course, I took the call. I got out of the shower, and I was soaking wet. And... Uh, i didn't so I didn't realize that the call would come before the public announcement, which it sometimes does. I also didn't realize that it wouldn't be just a, you know somebody saying, "Oh, congratulations, you won the Nobel Prize goodbye it wasn't that so I got out of the shower I was dripping wet and, uh, took this call and got congratulations from several different people and instructions about how to deal with the press and so that Anyway, after, after all that, which I was still totally naked, and, and my wife was kind of drawing me off as this was going on, um, I, uh, I guess I threw on a bathrobe. I don't remember the details, but I certainly didn't get fully dressed. The next thing I did was uh, call my parents. And, and my father answered the phone, and I guess by this time it was like 5.30, and he said... Do you know what time it is? What are you calling me about? Whatever you're selling, I don't want it. <laughs> and, and, and if you call again, I'll, call, I'll, call the, I'll tell the cops. Uh, anyway, so, like, uh, but I told him, no, it's your son, it's your son. I, I got the Nobel Prize, and it was very special. I mean, for my, especially for my father, I think, who uh, was very much himself, into science and a technical person and very much admired that uh, culture and, and, and would have loved to make a contribution, but uh, uh, felt you know, that he, uh, because of the circumstances of his life he wasn't in a position to do it. So he was very, but it meant a tremendous amount to him to see that, that his son uh, sort of did what he would have liked to do
1: like me, Frank, you were raised a Catholic. Yes. How did Bertrand Russell cause you to lose your faith in religion?
0: Well, Bertrand Russell is a beautiful writer. He writes beautifully. Uh, and I took, my parents weren't really terribly religious, they, but they did, uh, ex, you know, they did bring me up in the church so I went to catechism class and things like that and I I took it very very seriously I I was uh, you know I I was very worried about going to hell (laughs) and I was very (laughs) I was very inspired by the idea that you could be a saint and sort of guaranteed of eternal uh, bliss or whatever and uh, anyway and, and I, I was impressed by the ceremonies and so, but, uh, so, in a way, I was much more religious than they were. Uh, but, uh, as I was, but I was learning about science as, as I grew up, too, so there's kind of these parallel things. And in, so I was very interested in philosophy and logic and mathematics. And, uh, that brought me to Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell, uh, is a, writes beautifully and wrote on a, wrote beautifully and wrote on a large number of subjects and, uh, ranging from mathematical logic, which is what I first encountered to, uh, uh to religion and, and ethics and things like that. And, uh, I wouldn't say it was solely due to his influence, but, uh, there was growing tension in my mind between the things we were getting exposed to in catechism class, and uh, there was an intense period when, in preparation for confirmation, when, uh, when I you know, took what I normally would have been taking, I was taking it seriously. But then there was this very intense. Uh, exposure for a few days. I get a, a kind of a retreat in preparation for confirmation when they really laid it on thick, so to speak. <laughs> and, uh, and I and kind of brought things to a, uh, a head because I felt tr- now the tremendous tension between what I was being uh, told about the universe and uh, how things work from these two very different perspectives. And okay, I got, I did confirmation, and, and didn't. Uh, but after, and and was, you know, at that point in my life, I was thinking, I oh gee, I, I should try to be a saint. Maybe I'll be a priest. But then it all broke for me when, and I think, and it was, it was partly the influence of Bertrand Russell's writings that. Uh, Brought me to the view that would uh, what the account of things that I was getting from this you know scriptures and catechism class and so forth really was not so much wrong or but but I mean it was, if if there were mistakes here and there or you know simplifications so that so that people could understand it that would be one thing but it was just. Lacking in grandeur <laughs> the grandeur of the you know the grandeur of <laughs> the universe there were many many secrets that could have been revealed and that would have been really impressive if that's what really struck me is that there are so many ways that God could have made it easier to believe in him that, that it didn't make use of. He said, okay, yeah. so he could have said, well, if you grind glass this way and that and look out, you'll see these fantastic wonders that I've produced, or or you can see what things are made out of and, and cure diseases. and But none of that was there. It, so it dawned on me that probably these writings are just what they look like. They're kind of people... Not very sophisticated, trying to come to grips with the world, and not, uh, and so that that was very deflating. Uh, and, uh, that, yeah, that.
1: For me, I lost my faith semi-ironically when I was learning about world religions uh-huh. at school, because I realised many of these beliefs are mutually exclusive. Yes. And it's probably more likely that none of them is correct than <laughs> one of them is correct and all the others are wrong. Uh, How do you personally find or create meaning in an apparently godless universe?
0: Well, I keep looking, and, and I mean, there's plenty... There's so much to understand and learn, and it's it it's mind-expanding to, to do that. Uh, I guess I'm... I'm lucky in my choice of mother, if you like. As I told her, she, as I told you, she was a very happy person, and and that together with uh, my father's kind of curiosity and and I've lived a very charmed life in the sense that I've been able to uh, uh, do what I love and and uh, and and be good at it and be, and never never really have to. Be, feel insecurity i was i i have a wonderful wife and family and uh, yeah so uh so all those things are kind of in the background and uh as kind of a secure base and then uh find so there's joy there's just joy in life and and uh I wish, you know, I, I wish I could live forever. <laughs> I wish uh, I wish uh the uh the various things could be better and, and uh but uh this how should I say I've gotten so many gifts that I haven't didn't really earn <laughs> that it seems like seems seemed, seemed kind of uh, uh, cranky to complain and uh this, and, and uh, this I feel still so much to look forward to uh i and so uh so that I, I don't i don't so i'm trying i'm finding meanings i'm finding more and more meanings and i understand more and more and it's wonderful it's mind expanding and uh i i try not to be too greedy you know that that's a you about it and i guess that that's that's my uh philosophy such as it is <laughs> <laughs>
1: You were reading Einstein's books and papers even in high school and you made it yes. one of your goals to not just read but understand his original paper on general relativity. Yes, And yes. by the time you entered college at the University of Chicago, you thought you had achieved that. Yes, um, I did, right. In hindsight, do you think you, you've, you've genuinely understood it at the time?
0: Uh, well, yes and no. I think I understood it line by line. Yeah, I did. I definitely did understand it line by line. I mean, I worked through it. (laughs) Probably there were things here and there that I, uh, you know, didn't derive for myself or check the algebra or anything, but but it's a very nicely written paper, so it uh, it actually uh, is a very... It has the reputation of being extremely difficult, but it's actually by... The standards of uh, theoretical physics literature it 's actually a very easy paper to read It has a, it has a nice section on uh, tensor calculus which sort of starts semi from scratch and derives everything you need uh, i didn't so so yes, I could read it and understand the the, the flow of ideas. I certainly did not at that time uh, have the background to really conceptualize where it fit and why it was a big step past Newton and how difficult it was and how rare these kinds of insights are, uh, and I certainly didn't, I, I didn't understand things well enough to go from that paper to kind of the next steps. I mean, uh, I didn't see the germs of cosmology or black holes or anything in in the paper. I just I understood. A, what was in the paper, no more, no less. <laughs> That's uh, Sorry.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I can't say that for general relativity, which is way above my pay grade. <clears throat> but at times I've, I've felt that or persuaded myself that I understood special relativity. And I recommend to listeners the 1905 paper in which Einstein yes. sets it out the paper called on the electrodynamics of moving bodies. It's really yes. worth reading, even just as a piece of scientific history. It's yes. pretty short especially and, clear, and mostly It's very
0: short and clear until he starts talking about Maxwell's equations and their invariance. So but you do but you can but the analysis of space and time and uh, getting to the, the physical effects of Lorentz of uh, time dilation and all the most the sort of the most conceptual things uh you can th- that that's all self-contained uh mm. it's i think and at the end at the end he does does the more advanced kind of discussion of maxwell's equations which was the way he came to it really but mm. uh yeah but he really got to the bottom of things <laughs> and and, uh, and and was able to present it the essence in a much simpler way than the way he found it
1: I, think. <laughs> I also love his explanation in his book, Relativity, the Special and General Theory, which was written for a popular audience. He uses the example of the train, the embankment, and the two bolts of lightning at the either end of the train to explain the relativity of simultaneity. And I read that and I feel, yeah, I, I get this. It's so intuitive. But maybe I don't. I mean, I, I probably don't. And I'm curious... Frank, what what does it mean to think you understand something but to actually not properly understand it? How can you check whether or not you understand something properly? I'm looking for ways to avoid the Dunning-Kruger effect.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> there are different levels of understanding. So, you know, there's one word understanding that covers a multitude of levels of ability. Uh, just as, you know, for instance, right now I'm 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 trying to to learn Swedish, <laughs> and okay, I I can read pretty well simple texts, and I'm starting to get to the uh, level where I can understand spoken Swedish, uh, if with the help of context and things like that, but. Uh, but I'm, my ability to speak it myself is primitive, and uh, so. It, but it's you know all these things improve and go along, and if you watch how a baby develops, there are different levels of skill that you develop with time with language. I'll never be as, you know, I'll never have the kind of fluency that I have with English and ability to write something that approximates literature, and so the the the. Uh, Okay, so it's like that in science, too. <laughs> <There are different laughs> levels of uh, There are different levels of understanding things. Uh, I, there's a very profound statement by Dirac, another great physicist like Einstein, who said, I feel I understand an equation when I can uh, predict its consequences without actually solving it. So there's this level you get to where uh, you can... Work in concepts and develop intuition about how things will behave uh, without actually having to go th- step by step through the the uh, through through the derivations then uh, but that comes typically only after working a lot of examples, so you can see what what uh, you can imagine having done it without. Actually doing it, uh, that, but I, I don't think it's really different in a way from uh, things like learning how to play the piano. There are different levels. I mean, so the the, the crudest level is uh, you learn there's a thing called a piano and there are notes and you can you can play the notes and you can play them one at a time and you can learn that the names of the notes and so forth and that's that's sort of the the. You know that's the very cruise level, and and, uh, uh, and in principle, that gives you the ability to play anything. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the ability to do it fluently and integrate a lot of information in real time that that's different. And uh, yeah, so so it's the same way in physics. So you you uh, there are different levels. You can understand basic things about the physical world. Uh, you can understand them from different perspectives, but if you want yourself to make a contribution to pushing the frontiers, that's a different thing. Then you really have to command the subject and have confidence that, that you can uh, do calculations and understand how things will work uh, if you change them and things like that. Right? So so I guess the the... the if I had to s- try to summarize all that sort of cloud of ideas briefly, I would say that uh, depth of knowledge is when you can deviate a little from the conditions of what you've actually learned. Uh, so you, it doesn't have to be literally the same thing that you've just read. <laughs> if you change things a little bit, you can still uh, make sense of it. Or you can realize its implications and
1: things like that. Yeah. Is it true that at one point you owned and lived in Einstein's house in Princeton?
0: Yes, yes, for about 10 years. We lived uh, at 112 Mercer Street. And
1: <laughs> yes. We are. Does it still have kind of like artifacts and memorabilia from his time in the place?
0: It had a little bit. Uh, well, I, I should say that the house... So Einstein died, I believe, in 1955... And then for quite a few years, uh, the house was lived in by uh, Helen Dukas, his secretary, and I believe his sister? Could it have been his sister? I think, yeah, maybe his sister. Uh, and the two old ladies lived there, and the, and the house really kind of, was falling down around them (laughs) so you know they didn't have the energy after a while to keep it up and, and I found out that the, the famous study where you, you sometimes see pictures of Einstein working mm-hmm. was actually something that was added to the house and built by a friend of Einstein's and was not built very well, that was kind of falling down so, so we had to do a lot of renovations before we moved in it, and uh, we did uh, and the, uh, the place was owned by the Institute for Advanced Study which uh, Einstein worked at and he left it to them and they offered it to me as kind of the part of the recruitment process and but it uh, and but of course they took most of the stuff out most of the stuff was was gone uh a lot a lot of it was just uh there's a lot of just residue of the old ladies living there a lot of it. Uh, but but there were a few there were a few gems <laughs> there were a few there was a a toy uh that was given to Einstein which apparently he was very fond of which is shows a was as a clown balancing with uh I don't know what you call it but but a long uh, stick like a tightrope walker would have and so that was illustrating gravity and that that little thing was used as a prop in a movie about, that was filmed at 112 Mercer Street uh anyway we all, we have that and uh, but mostly it was uh... oh, the other thing, the most notable... oh no, there are a couple of notable things I, uh, now that you know more more is coming back to me as I think about it, so probably the two most notable things were there was a piano, there was a Bechstein piano, very high, very good piano, and I used that for many years. I used that the whole time I was there. I played it a lot, so that was Einstein's piano, and it was in pretty good shape. Uh, and then, uh, then there was also the bed that, that, that uh, he slept in, I think, uh, and that was not in good shape. <laughs> we tried, <laughs> yeah, and uh, after, after trying it out for a few days, we just got rid of it because it was uh, <laughs> not salvageable. <laughs> the, the novelty wore uh, so, off. Yes, very quickly when, well, it was causing me back pain among other things because kind of, <laughs> it was kind of it was kind of mal shaped and there was a big hole in the middle, yeah, and you had to kind of avoid it and then there were well and, I, and more is coming there was also some nice furniture that we but it was so nice that it was we didn't feel comfortable using it, so we had one room where we put that stuff and uh, yeah that. so it was it was That was kind of the museum section of our house, although we never used it as a museum, of course, and eventually we did donate it to a museum.
1: Did you draw inspiration from living in his old house?
0: Well, it was very gratifying and... uh, inspiring in a way, I guess what was... Yeah, it was inspiring. Uh, Well... Physics can be a struggle, and uh, most most ideas. If you're doing research at the frontiers, most of your ideas don't work, and it can be depressing sometimes. Or ideas don't come, so there are down periods. Or you're doing things that you're not very enthusiastic about. At least in my case, you know. So, uh, uh, but after that, I would come home and uh, walk to this house, which is I lived in. I said wow, you live in Einstein's house. That's pretty good. <laughs> You've come a long way since Glen Oaks. And, and yeah, so so that it, it did buoy my spirits in that way. That was the main thing, I would say.
1: Uh, yeah. uh, At Chicago University as an undergraduate, you stumbled onto the quantum theory of angular momentum. Why do you consider it to be one of the absolute pinnacles of human achievement?
0: Well, because it's it's a place where two apparently entirely different conceptual universes uh, turn out to be the same. Uh, one is uh, the description of symmetry, in this case, rotation symmetry of space. So uh, the, the uh, that has mathematical implications, so-called representations of the rotation group, which are quite profound. Uh, so... Exploiting how things trans, how things can possibly transform as you rotate, uh, that's one domain of ideas which mathematicians studied kind of for its own sake uh, profoundly in the 17th and 18th and 19th and early 20th century. And then you have this entirely different thing, uh, or superficially entirely different, which is uh, quantum mechanics, which is. A body of uh, lore <laughs> that uh, is, is comes, of course, from describing the physical world, and it's very surprising uh, in its in its structure. It's, just, it's in fact, to this day, it's a big problem to understand how the world we actually experience emerges from this kind of shadowy world with probabilities and and abstract uh, concepts. The but anyway, those, those two are like... Those two come together in a marriage where the sum of the two is much more than either one separately. So you have these mathematical structures of representations, and then you have uh, quantum mechanics, which tells you that these things are representations of the world. Mm. They're representations of particles and their properties. And uh, the and then of course uh, what makes it magic is not that you can bring together different branches of mathematics but that that their description that is a description of reality so by doing difficult intricate calculations that you would never imagine doing from kind of if you just Uh, we're dealing with everyday interactions with the world and and trying to uh, learn from that experience kind of empirically, Uh, the deep understanding and manipulating the mathematical concepts leads you to predictions about how things behave that are really surprising, really detailed, and that work. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, yeah, it's it's an extraordinary thing. You have be- beautiful ideas that were studied for their own sake. You have surprising, surprising revelations about how the world uh, works in, in, as a, in, in kind of a general framework. And then you have the two coming together to give you a really rich, detailed description of the mapping between a calculated world and our world, and they match. You know, it's really amazing. Yeah. it's it's, even just talking about it like it's kind of into a rapture of (laughs) it's so it's so
1: amazing Uh, yeah Uh, (laughs) so from chicago you get to princeton as we've already sort of indicated take me back frank to those months in 1972 at princeton you're just 21 years old and you're working on the physics, which will yeah. eventually lead to you being awarded the Nobel Prize. What, what were your days like? What did they look like?
0: Well, that was a wild period in my life. Uh, when I arrived at Princeton two years before, or, or yeah, roughly two years before, uh, I had was coming off a kind of uninterrupted run of great success in, in academic pursuits, and uh, very, uh, and so I went to Princeton, you know, in as a graduate student in mathematics, uh, sort of fully expecting that that uh, it would continue to be easy and, and life would be good. And uh, but I was in for a shock when I got to Princeton, uh, because well, first of all, I didn't realize I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I I thought I wanted to. Use mathematics for something like Einstein had done, or like my other heroes, Feynman and Hermann Weil, and, and or or in biology, of the, or in computer science. There's some I wanted to do something great, but I didn't know what using using the mathematical skills. Uh, and I thought, uh, well, I'd go to Princeton. That's the place where you get revelations <laughs> like that, and and I and it would be obvious what to do. But but. I I quickly found out by by experience that uh, it's a very different thing to learn than to create. It's create it, it. It's really uh, creation is slower. It's much less foolproof and. It's harder work in, in many ways and, and requires a different kind of focus, at least for me. Learning things is very, it, especially in those days, was very, very early, very, very easy. Uh, but th- th- to make the transition to doing something new when I didn't know what it is I wanted to do and I didn't have the kind of uh, experience or, com- or command of any particular subject that it would take to, to really push the frontiers, I, I really it's hard for me even now to realize how uh how unhappy I was then and how I was kind of lost. But then after a couple of years of uh, uh two miracles happened. <laughs> one, one, one is that I met Betsy, my my was my still my wife, <laughs> and and she kinda uh brought me out of that funk because you know, that's uh, I, it was clear there he was something great to live for, and, uh, and she yeah she's very special, and so and uh, I didn't feel alone anymore, uh, and then uh, I found something in physics that I could really and someone in physics that I could really glom onto. Uh, there were things I, the physics department was right is in, in Princeton is right. Next to the math department, and the math department is kind of this forbidding tower. We, but the the math building is this kind of friendly place. I was at the physics building is kind of friendly place where you meet people. So I wandered over there, and uh, and went to seminars. I was going to seminars in in biology, everything but computers, everything. But the but physics was really exciting. It was clearly in a period of extraordinary. Excitement and advancement, and I could see that uh, this was the k- t- 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 this was the time when what's now called the standard model or the core theory was being invented. There were great new ideas about renormalization group, about gauge theories, that uh, used the kind of mathematics that I really liked—the mathematics of symmetry and and analysis and calculation. Uh, so so I was so I went to some lectures by Ken Wilson which I didn't understand at all but gave a sense of excitement and I went so I decided to, I went to uh, uh, a class on quantum field theory by David Gross and and we really hit it off he was this kind of charismatic very very brilliant guy uh, very driven and uh, clearly uh, Someone I could learn from and relate to. Uh, I was twenty-one. So I was, he was thirty-one, which at that time seemed to me ancient, but <laughs> clearly <laughs> he was young and dynamic. In retrospect, he was young, very, very young and very dynamic, and very driven and very much on, on the make in the sense that he wanted to do great things, and he was very, you know, very ambitious. And so, so I started. I talked started talking to him, and and that. Out of those conversations, we we discussed a lot of things and hit on this project of putting together the gauge theories and the renormalization group to to see how they work together because these were two kind of different powerful strands that nobody had put together. Uh, I had I was just looking for a thesis project, really. I wanted to do something. <laughs> As I said, I want to get out of this crisis by doing something, and uh, the the uh, and that was that suggested itself. David was very interested in finding a theory of the strong interaction or proving that, that quantum field theory couldn't work to describe the strong interaction he wanted to have. But anyway, this all came together. It was very, we were in the right place at the right time with the right kind of drive and talent to solve it.
1: What uh, do you think it? <laughs> David saw in a young kid from Queen's? I don't know <laughs> I, I,
0: he, saw, uh, he he saw us uh but uh, you know I, we talked, and I guess the, that's the, the the short answer is we talked yeah. and well that that was one thing, and the other thing is you know i I had at least enough on the ball to become a graduate student at Princeton, so that's something that you know there's that, a funnel you have to go through to get there and uh um and, uh, and, uh, and also, you know, the course had some homework and I worked to really do elegant solutions to the problems. So he saw that. So all
1: those things, I think.
0: I, they're, they're all. The same year, 19,
1: 1972, a book is published called Gravitation and Cosmology by Steven Weinberg, who's another Nobel laureate. And... Towards the end of the book, Weinberg's talking about how the strong interaction makes our understanding of the very early universe difficult. And I'll quote him from page 597. He writes, It is therefore not out of the question that someday we may detect remnants of previous cycles of the history of the universe. For the present, however, such matters remain at the furthest bounds of cosmological speculation. Frank, do you remember when you found this book and why did it make such an impression on you?
0: I found it, well, not long after. I mean, it was part of my graduate. Ed- I mean, I should say that I, I, uh, I came to physics never with a very little conventional training in physics. I had taken a few courses here and there, but I, uh, there are vast gaps in my knowledge that's another reason I went to quantum field theory because I th- felt you didn't have to know much <laughs> to, because if you, if, you, if you had the mathematics at your command, you didn't have to know a lot of facts because the, the, this was about uh, elementary particles and, the, and so it's it, it sort of the simplest possible situations uh, and could, was relatively clean. You didn't have to worry about experiments or, anything, you know, or have a lot of knowledge. You could, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, it was a very naive view. But that was that was my view, <laughs> and uh, uh, the. Uh, but anyway, but you know, shortly afterwards, I, I wanted to exploit the insights we had gotten, and also I just wanted to fill in the gaps and what I, what I felt. You know, I found myself becoming a professional physicist. I said, I thought you know, you'd better be prepared to answer questions that a professional qu- physicist is expected to know the, the answers to. So uh, um, so I, I you yeah, know, and, and uh, the very early universe, of course, is fascinating in itself. Uh, as we mentioned before, I had been very uh, interested in, in learning all about uh, Einstein and his work, because he was a personal hero. And it happened that the book that I bought, that uh, that had Einstein's original paper in it, also on general relativity and special relativity. Also had his original paper on cosmology, and of course I, so I was aware of that. And, and and Weinberg's book was a sort of modern version of physical cosmology at the time, and so it was very natural for me to read it. Uh, and. Uh, it's very you know it's very well written. It does it's very sort of step by step systematic orderly exposition of what was known. So it was reasonably easy to read. Uh, and then, but then what struck me at the end was at the end he talks about uh, what's unknown. And one of the, one of the striking things there was that. The, the limitation in understanding the strong interaction was the barrier to making further progress because if you go back to the Big Bang things get very dense very hot and you have lots of protons and neutrons and strongly interacting particles interacting strongly people thought and it, it was uh, just utterly impenetrable nobody knew how to proceed but uh, our work on asymptotic freedoms made it simple <laughs> instead instead of things getting more complicated, and uh, they get simpler at high energy, and according to the theory. And and so I I remembered that those last sections of Weinberg's book because they, they really st- I was always looking for opportunities, and uh, the, you know it sort of was very clear to me that uh, now. We could go back to those questions and uh, and and address them in a much more intelligent, confident way because the the strong interaction was coming under control. Yeah.
1: The standard model is often thought of as a zoo of particles, but you've said that it's better understood as a realization of principles. What do you mean by that? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, this. Uh, uh, yeah, there are two very different things. There's kind of the core of the standard model which is uh, based on a few, intera- a few interactions, strong, weak, and electromagnetic interactions and gravity also fits in nicely in general relativity. Uh, so these four all kind of work harmoniously together and, and give us a, a profound understanding of the world uh, and they work on uh, in everyday life, just a few ingredients. There are quarks, gluons, photons, and electrons, and that's really it. Uh, gravitons are lurking in the background as kind of holding things together on cosmological scales, but basically, in everyday life, that's it. And if if it, if it stopped there, uh, people would have you know, still been looking for a unified theory, but there wouldn't be all this grousing about how ugly the standard model is, blah, blah, blah. blah. Uh, but at accelerators, people found a lot of unstable particles, so more kinds of quarks, uh, basically, whose m- mutual interactions are very complicated. There's their pattern of masses, their pattern of who decays into co- who, how they couple to W and Z bosons. Uh, the details of that are uh, not beautiful, and, but so there, there's a large domain of interactions and uh, phenomena that are described very compactly with beautiful mathematics, sort of comparable to the mathematics of quantum theory of angular momentum that I mentioned. In fact, very much related to that, but uh, grander, <laughs> if you like, because it's uh, it, it more comprehensive. Uh, then... Uh, uh and then then there's the the complications that you need to add on that to do justice to these uh, odd transient phenomena that people have discovered at accelerators so uh, so i I don't you know i don't I think we can appreciate the beauty of this of the standard model. While recognizing that that's not the whole story, (laughs) that uh, so it describes the the beautiful part is what describes ordinary matter, very precise, the kind of matter that we have in everyday life, and it gives a beautifully compact, and even in astrophysics, all kinds of engineering, everything, uh, biology uh, is compact. I think is uh, is very well tested and based on profoundly beautiful theories ideas Uh, and I I, you know and you can describe them in a rather thin book as I did in Fundamentals and, and do some kind of justice to it but then if you want to uh, bring in all the stuff that people have found at accelerators, all these very unstable particles that don't seem to have any important role in the universe, but there they are. Why are they there? What can we make? Can we make this bigger structure into something unified and beautiful? Uh, that That's where it gets hairy, right? So we hope someday that those things get brought in, but that shouldn't blind us to the beauty of what we already have, Yeah, but.
1: To what extent do you think the work you did during the 1970s has contributed to our ability to produce a grand unified theory?
0: Oh, well, it's absolutely central. You couldn't even begin to think about a grand unified theory without, first of all, understanding the strong interaction, which is. You know there are only four interactions and that's one of them <laughs> so, so uh, you have to understand you're gonna you're gonna make a unified theory you have to know what to unify and what it is uh, so we found the equations and so you know what it is and, and and it turns out that that those equations are very profoundly similar to the they uh, the, their, uh Richer in a way, more complicated. They 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 have more bells and whistles, if you like. But uh, their central idea is very similar to the idea of the guiding idea, the high symmetry or the so-called gauge symmetry of electrodynamics and also of the weak interaction. So. All three interactions, of those three interactions have a very, very similar mathematical structure of symmetry and exchange of spin-one particles. Gravity is a little bit different, but still sort of has a family resemblance. It uh, is based on on, on, uh, also symmetry. It's slightly different. It's... uh, it's called uh, general covariance if you like, and it's associated with the spin two particle instead of a spin one particle, but it's the kind of the same family. So having these four theories with uh, similar conceptual structure makes almost is begging you to try to unify them. And but the other aspect of, of our con- contribution is uh, not only revealing what the equations are, but also revealing this principle that the effective strength of interactions changes with distance or with energy and uh, opening up the possibility that if you calculate what happens at very short distances or at very high energies, the interactions come together in uh, a quantitative way. So you can discuss unification not only as kind of a dream, but also quanti- you can draw out quantitative implications of this possibility that they unify. And it almost works. It more or less works. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, you know, it's, it involves a huge extrapolation, so a lot of things could go wrong. It's amazing it works as well as it does. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mari Gelman famously lifted the word quark from James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake and co-opted it, uh, as you yeah. know, Frank, as the name for the particle that he helped to discover. You've you've also named some particles right. or, or hypothetical particles, including the slightly less poetic yes. axion, which you named after... The Laundry Detergent, oh, um, <laughs> which is still, uh, still a better name than well, the Jolly Swagman taste may differ, right? <laughs> but um, but uh, na- names and words in, in physics can have a deeper impact than that when they affect oh yes. how we how we frame things. Talk about how you think about how words have helped or hindered our understanding of the concepts they're intended to describe.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's a very... Uh, profound and underappreciated fact, not only about physics, but about uh, all subjects, really. I think that uh, having names for concepts really conditions the discourse. Mm. Because when you have a name for something... uh, ideas accrete around it a domain of discourse a literature accretes around it and uh if there's no such nucleus around to accrete then then the, the ideas just float and don't necessarily come together in the same way so it's like uh it's like when you have uh A supercooled liquid or or if you have a, a, in the weather if you want if you want to have raindrops or snowdrops you have to have nuclei around they around which they crystallize and then and then uh, around the, which they condense and then you, anyway i don't know. i'm not sure I wanted to go use that metaphor but all right. <laughs> uh, they but uh, having having uh, centers around which things can uh, organize and attract each other and kind of have a locus is really important. And computer scientists are learning this also in uh, in machine learning. Uh, it's the the, the uh, so called unsupervised learning is largely a matter of finding resemblances among things and putting them into categories. And that, if you think about it, that's giving them a name. It's giving uh, give you, so you have. Uh, things which resemble each other somehow and they cluster and then that tells you that there is something and you can give it a name. Okay, in the computer they don't necessarily give it a name but, the, but they give it a memory location and links <laughs> but it's the same, it's the same idea. Uh, so having names really is a great aid to thinking and it's also a great aid not only to individual thinking but to how communities think because people recognize a subject around the word uh so i, I could give exa- many examples in physics but uh uh let's see what's a good that's a nice example
1: i know um, um i know Feynman hated well Clark change. is a good example
0: <laughs> color yeah. Color as a name for charge, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty stupid actually. because uh, uh, you know it's sort of purposely confusing because the color charge uh, has nothing to do with color in the ordinary sense. I mean, literally nothing. In, in fact, any metaphor you kind of try to draw uh, doesn't work. I don't know any any way to, to uh, 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 well well actually I mean you could stretch it if you think about it, not physical color but the perception of color we have three receptors oh yeah and you can blend different things mm-hmm. but but color charge is a very very different thing than color in uh, in the in the usual way is applied to to, to light. So that's not that's not a good one so you can make bad choices as well as good ones no yeah. question in
1: in what <laughs> sense is in what sense is the name the big Bang potentially misleading
0: Well it's potentially big, misleading because uh, people usually associate explosions with some uh, bomb or some location that sudden where a lot of energy concentrates and then it expands out but the, the Big Bang, as currently understood, is quite different. It occurred everywhere at once. So that's potentially misleading. But otherwise, it's a pretty good name. And, you know, it's, it's short and gave people a convenient handle on to which to associate which. W- things which it would otherwise be quite a mouthful. You know, the, the hypothesis that early in its history the universe was much hotter and denser and then it expanded out. You know, just saying there was a Big Bang is much more convenient and people can can, can kind of uh, gather their thoughts around, around that body of lore. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a nice it's good <laughs> the only as i said the only thing that it, the only bad thing about it i would say is that uh, it uh, it's a little undignified but that's okay and uh, and that it does suggest that there was a place a sort of center from which things expanded and that's not true it's uniform yeah. it was everywhere it occurred everywhere at the same time
1: <laughs> am i correct in thinking that you may be the youngest person who's contributed to the standard model. Well,
0: it depends what you mean by contributed. I mean, people are still contributing, but I think there there was there was a, a you know the 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 foundation of the standard model uh, was laid in a very brief period. I would say the the main ideas. Well, people may dispute what the main ideas were, but I, I think there's a pretty clear circle of ideas that emerged in the uh, uh, late 60s, the very late 60s and early 70s, which is still to this day uh, thought to be entirely valid and is the basis of our profound understanding of the physical world. And uh, yeah, I I think QCD and asymptotic freedom was kind of the last major link in the chain. And I was the youngest person involved.
1: That's right. In a- and, <laughs> and am I correct in thinking that there haven't been any industrial applications of the ideas for which you won the Nobel Prize? At least, not yet.
0: Any practical uh, industrial implications? Applications? No. Oh, industrial? No, I don't think so. You, you would really have to stretch it. Uh, No. (laughs) There have been applications to cosmology, as I mentioned. There's been tremendous application to uh, understanding the interpretation and designing experiments at accelerators. So, if you count that as industrial activity, I guess, <laughs> but, but no, <laughs> uh, the uh, the short answer is the honest and short answer is no. Uh, so, so, so it's, a, it's been applied within physics very profoundly to sort of push the frontiers of knowledge of the early universe of how accel- of what happens at accelerators, uh, unification, but not what any sane person would call a practical application,
1: I don't think. According to the economist Robert Gordon, US economic growth slowed by more than half from 3.2% per year during the period from 1970 to 2006, to only 1.4% during the period from 2006 to 2016. And recently on this podcast, Frank, I've been asking guests whether the slower economic growth since the 1970s has been causing an increase in rent-seeking or vice versa, or, or maybe, I guess, something else has been driving both the slow growth and the rent-seeking. And I'd like to ask you the physics version of this question because I'm interested in the sociology. Okay, good,
0: because I'm not, I'm not prepared to answer the economics
1: version. <laughs> sure. No, no, fair enough. <laughs> I, I would, wouldn't would uh, put you on the spot like that, but I am interested in the sociology of string theory and so my question is has the the intense politics for want of a better word in the physics community distorted the community's ability to make new major discoveries or has a reduction in the frequency of new major discoveries led to this kind of bitter infighting and politics in the physics community
0: well first of all i am i'm not prepared to accept the premise that there's been bitter infighting and politics there has been (laughs) there, there has been yeah some some inevitable i mean friction between different communities that want to represent the one you know want to get faculty positions and support and so forth uh in that's quite normal, and maybe it's been a little more intense in recent years, out of because of the frustration. Of, uh, so I guess I'm, I'm groping towards an answer. Let me, so I'll try to be honest about this, although it might get me in trouble. With the, the, I think I think the main reason that uh, things have slowed down in terms of progress in fundamental physics. Assembly that we were so successful in, in uh, bringing things together in, in, in the '70s and '80s, in fundamental uh, interactions and, and fundamental cosmology. And it's really been hard to get beyond that. Uh, we kind of swept the field as far as uh, experimental data. We explained it all. <laughs> if your standards are low enough, I should say, you know, in a broad-grained way, we we certainly can't calculate the details of every reaction any more than you can in chemistry. But we understand the principles, I think, pretty securely, and uh, uh, and it's been very difficult to do any better. That's what people have found. That's so. Uh, in a, in a sense, that's a, that's glorious. That's not a failure. I mean, that means we. But it's it's unfortunate if if what you want to do is to keep to keep uh, um, improving or expanding our fundamental principles, mm. uh, and that was once the central activity of physics. I mean. Uh, all through the 20th century, I would say, until maybe the, the very last parts, the description, the, the search for new fundamental principles and the search for improving our understanding of the physical world was the same search. So when people uh, discovered the principles of quantum mechanics, it opened up the, di- the uh, the description of materials, chemistry, uh, you know, all the innovations of lasers and microelectronics and all that stuff came... came uh, semiconductors, technology, all that stuff came in a very, very tangible way that you can trace through profound curiosity and understanding about how atoms work and how matter works and uh, the breakthroughs in the quantum theory. Uh, and then funda- then there were still questions about how atomic nuclei work how about how the stars get light lit up and things like this where the energy comes from and then how, where the where the universe came from the big bang uh and and those questions were And then that kind of information about the world that experimenters and observers had gathered uh got used and put together into a nice package that's been hard to improve. It doesn't mean it can improve. There there are certainly loose ends. There's a so-called dark matter problem. Uh, there's tension between certain aspects of our understanding of, of uh, gravity of, and our understanding of uh, quantum mechanics. But to a first approximation, uh, we, the, the Empirical drive, let alone the technological drive that powered fundamental physics through the 20th century, has kind of dissipated because we've we've got we've understood the data. <laughs> to, so, the, uh, so we're left with aesthetic desires, and that could, that's very debatable. And people try different things; none of them has really worked in a very prof- uh, in anything like the kind of depth and power that that what we did in the 70s and 80s, I'm sounding like an old man, and I guess I'm getting <laughs> there. But 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 in those days we were giants, and we uh, we solved all. And it's much and that's much harder. And uh, the the uh, 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 so let's see. Oh, but but okay, but but you know no. But I think physics in many ways is more exciting than ever because it's like. Uh let's go back to that piano analogy, which is one I, I really like. So uh learning the fundamental principles is like learning a piano has notes and you you can play them and there are a certain number of notes, and eventually you played all the notes, so you know <laughs> you know how it works. Uh that's but that's not the end of the story. That's when it gets really interesting. Okay, now you now you can put the notes together and play chords and and make patterns and do fantastic things. And that that's 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 uh, an ongoing creative activity, knowing the fundamentals, you can you can build beautiful objects and quantum computers and quant- instruments of different kinds and expand our perception and maybe uh, get at questions like how mind emerges from matter and make useful devices. And yeah, it's just, so, uh, uh, so I don't, I don't, I'm, I... Uh, What am I trying to say here? I'm not. What well, I'm trying to, its still exciting. But the nature of the, the fruitful questions changes because of what you've learned, and I don't. Uh, and, that, that, and now, uh, so I think insisting that the only interesting or the most interesting or the, the most profound part of physics is improving uh, the most basic laws was an easier case to make when there were more loose ends and when the, the that enterprise was thriving. Uh, Now, I think uh, there's competition from other fields, but there's also within physics, there's a thriving enterprise of uh, using the theory in creative ways. Uh, We know that its potential is nowhere near being exhausted uh, in terms of, okay, now we understand how matter works, so we have no excuse for not uh, replacing chemists with computers, <laughs> we, mm. we, the uh, and and taking design of materials to new levels and new forms of engineering, all kinds of things you can imagine doing uh, that are really exciting, and I uh, and the quest for improving the fundamentals kind of has to compete with those other possibilities for the minds of young people and mm. for resources. Right.
1: I wonder how that's flowed through. To technological progress over the last few decades, recently Nicholas Bloom and some other economists wrote a, a paper called "Our Ideas Getting Harder to Find," and it's a mm-hmm. pretty disturbing paper. But they present a stylized equation which is economic growth equals research productivity multiplied by the number of researchers, and they present you know a uh-huh. swathe of evidence showing that research effort is rising at the same time as research productivity is falling. And one one of the main examples they pick comes from Moore's Law and they show that the number of researchers required today to achieve the famous doubling of computer, computer chip density is more than 18 times larger than the number required in the early 1970s. So we're kind of like on this... Treadmill running faster and faster and faster and faster, but we're not necessarily well, covering the yeah, same. Moore's ground. law is an
0: extraordinarily Moore's law is an extraordinarily high standard. Uh, you know, it's a miracle, really, fantastic. You know, that that mm. that that was has been maintained for so long. That, I mean, exponential growth usually usually doesn't go on for very long for very <laughs> yeah. good reasons you know it's it's hard to keep going it's you know the famous story of the of the the person the the one grain of rice and then two grains of rice and the yeah. king is eventually bankrupt and kills the kills the guy who who got this prize uh, the um, uh, and it's not unrelated to the phenomenon that that we've just been discussing that uh how should I say? When you there's a period of sort of heroic period when you discover vast new territories, and it only takes a few people to do that in a sense. Uh, but then, if you want to exploit it, uh, the low hanging fruit gets picked right away, and then you have to, then there's higher higher fruit, and you, it takes more effort. And sort of maybe in absolute terms, it doesn't seem as impressive, but it's more systematic. And takes more people, but yeah, but but, uh, how should I say? Nobody promised you a rose garden. You you gotta you gotta t- take it as it comes, <laughs> and uh, you, know, uh, um, you know, Columbus or whatever discovered a new world, uh, and that was vast, but you could only do it. One, that was one guy, <laughs> and but, so yes, he was enormously productive, and, but. You can't keep doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, you, and uh, so uh, yeah, so I I don't find that counterintuitive or disturbing at all. That that it gets harder because it was easy at first. There, there's merit, yeah. was,
1: <laughs> Well, it's <laughs> it's disturbing in terms of its social ramifications, I guess. But
0: if, well, it can be, yeah. I well, that's a different issue, which yes. I don't want to abuse my authority, such as it is, by pronouncing on. But uh, it's—I do think you're onto something. In the, if this is where you're going, which I, I sense is where it is, is that uh, already in the let me put it let me put it my way, and so to speak, or, already in the 1930s, uh, Lord Keynes, the great economist. Wrote a wrote a, a paper called "The Economic Prospects of Our Grandchildren" or something like that, where he talked about the level of productivity that was in sight that could be achieved in, in, in the near future. And, and they said that our grandchildren will will have the capability of working much fewer hours and living well, and everybody could be in the Bloomsbury Group, so to speak. As well, I guess what was in the back of his mind: <laughs> everyone could live comfortably, wouldn't have to worry about. Uh, and could devote themselves to art or whatever and uh, uh, and I do think well, I think that 's a bit much because the, this was not taking to account uh, you know the vast populations outside the first world to to oversimplify right? but uh but i don 't think it 's wrong in spirit, I think our Uh, industrial, our control of nature, our industrial processes and so forth, could support a very comfortable life for a lot of people as opposed to a kind of grotesquely uh, rich life for a few people and uh, hard work and impoverishment for many others to support that, you know. Uh, So, yeah, I, I... But that's not a problem of physics. That's a problem of uh, morality and politics and things like
1: that. Yeah, I think you're you're right, Frank. The big thing Keynes missed in the economic possibilities for our grandchildren was the huge rise in inequality, which, of of course, is something that he he couldn't or could not easily have predicted. So if many of the low-hanging fruits have been picked... I'd like to ask you about how we can find new orchards. And I guess there are like a couple of ways of approaching that question. One is to talk about broad approaches and the other is to talk about like particular areas or fields of physics. And to begin Mm. with the broad approaches, um, three people who who authored the major equations of the last century, Einstein, Dirac and Yang, all used beauty as their compass. And I'm, I'm curious yes. to hear from from you Frank as to whether you think that's just random or if there's something to it. Like why should why should the laws oh, of nature no. care about what we think is beautiful? And what does beauty mean and what why can't the fundamentals be ugly?
0: Well, there yeah, I think the the fundamentals as far as we understand them are very beautiful. Uh and but they have a very particular kind of beauty uh, that overlaps, but is not the same thing as our concept of beauty uh, more generally. So, I mean, so, so for instance, one of the major themes of uh, art history is the beauty of landscapes from how the beauty of, uh, the beauty of uh, sexual attraction, very attractive bodies of different uh, human bodies, the, the, uh, uh, those things aren't really represented in the fundamental laws. But the beauty, one powerful theme of a lot of art, uh, especially decorative art, when you look at the things people use to decorate their houses and so forth, is symmetry, that, that, that you have patterns that are very regular and people like that. And they've, it goes across many cultures, across many times. Uh, you see that maybe in the highest form in things like cathedrals or uh, mosques where you have these fantastic uh, decorations of, of high symmetry. Uh, and it turns out that the fundamental laws of nature are characterized by... Uh, tremendous amounts of symmetry. They're not symmetries of objects, but symmetries of uh, concepts and equations. That is, you can change the equations in many, many ways, and yet they have the same content. So it's it's the same thing as a symmetric object. You can change its position, and it still remains the same object. You rotate a circle, it's still a circle, even though every point moves, Uh, that kind of thing. So the laws have that character, And I think people find that I kind of have a theory of evolution about that, which (laughs) I think explains why. I mean, okay, I mean, the laws are what they are. So it's not so that that's kind of not negotiable. The question is why we find them beautiful. And uh, I think it's because uh, when we learn about the world and kind of have to interpret our. Uh, sensory experiences—it's a very, it's a big challenge to, to take our raw experience and turn it into a model of the world. Uh, we have to use the way the world works as part of it, as part of the rules of thumb. Is how you go from these impressions on our retinas, which are two-dimensional and all mixed up, to a three-dimensional world that we walk around in. It's, you, it's you have to. Use properties of the world which you learn partly because they're in our hardware, but also partly because you go as a baby, you, you experience these things and have to organize it. And uh, organizing it, in organizing it, it's very, very useful to use this property of, of symmetry because the laws are symmetric, you know, and patterns do tend to continue in the natural world. Uh, and you, if you have a blind spot, you fill it in by saying you know, it's more or less the same as what there was elsewhere. Anyway, so it's very, very useful. And I think uh, in in doing this learning task of coming to terms with how the world actually works, to uh, for uh, it's it's been useful for evolution. I mean, I, I realize I'm speaking in a way that biologists wouldn't approve of, but let me. It's trivial to translate. <laughs> the, uh, evolution encourages us to like symmetry because it's a useful thing to learn. <laughs> so the idea that uh, we would love to come back to symmetric objects and interact with them, which is in a way an operational definition of what beautiful is for human experience is something that evolution encourages so so I don't think it's entirely a miracle I think this you can have the beginning of an explanation now uh, of course the the, the depth of, of symmetry in in physical law is and its particular aspects that are kind of abstract and require a lot of imagination to even get to is way beyond the decorative art but uh, um, I think that's the way it works I think, I mean, that to me, at least that's a nice story of how <laughs> it works I mean, the laws are what they are and, they, 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 and another one more aspect to this is that if they weren't simple and regular and beautiful we would never have found them and that in particular applies to... Uh, Quantum chromodynamics are a theory of the strong force, which we never would have found those equations, except that they're very special equations that have enormous amounts of symmetry.
1: Yeah, I guess evolution might have prepared us to save the symmetry, but we're also lucky that symmetry runs deep down into the microcosmos. Yes.
0: Yes, we're lucky. That's right. It's a wonderful world, and we didn't deserve it. But there it is. And, uh, we're, well, we're part of it. You know, we're we're part of it. And I guess that's that's the that's the thing. We're, we we learn to love it because we're part of it and have to learn how to get get around in it. Mm.
1: Uh, so thinking about different fields or subject matter areas in physics, if we do reach a cul-de-sac at the Large Hadron Collider. And don't find any new particles what's the next most promising thing we should be doing
0: axions (laughs) (laughs) well there's a great problem of uh, dark matter what the dark matter is that's a very concrete challenge okay we've understood ordinary matter uh profoundly and yet then now the cosmologists have uh, found that 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 is only a small contribution to the the, the universe by mass. It's it's only about five percent, and then there's dark matter, and then there's a weight of empty space itself, the so-called dark energy. Uh, so uh, so ident- and it looks the dark matter looks very much like it should be some kind of new particle, and we have ideas about what that particle might be, and it's a great. Opportunity there to you know make make a fantastic uh, synthesis of and a fantastic um, uh, culmination of of or of, of a profound understanding leading to a very surprising and dramatic consequence that that there's this new kind of matter that's that's so much of the universe and it's so important in how it evolved. Um, and so one challenge is that identifying it, and and uh, their idea, you know, we can use our laws uh, to make guesses about what 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 that stuff might be. I, I'm very fond of this particular guess called axions, which I've been involved in developing for many years, uh, and cut these guesses come with equations and come with stratas and the equations allow you to have strategies for how you can test whether these hypotheses about the world are in fact correct so I think that's clearly to me that's that's the part of fundamental physics that seems by far the most likely to break through on a big in a big way in uh, in a reasonable human time scale uh, accelerators, well, you know, the LHC seemed to be a great opportunity to find uh, new particles, new phenomena and we did get the Higgs particle out of it but uh, not the more ambitious ideas about supersymmetry uh, that I, I certainly was hoping for and uh, maybe the energy is just high, not high enough anyway but in any case it's been it's that the LHC was a big expensive project and it's just, it's as a practical matter. I think it's difficult to motivate potential investors, <laughs> both of time and money, to uh, to build that without a clear to, to build a, a successor without a clear uh, indication that that something good would come out of it. Um, then. Uh, well, I don't. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, yeah, or, it does. Not, I'm sure it's a very broad question. I don't, don't think I've answered all aspects, but it, uh,
1: no, no, of course. N- I,
0: meanwhile, as I as I said, there are great things that don't involve fundamentals in the same sense. Don't that is don't involve maybe finding new laws uh, that you couldn't or phenomena that you couldn't derive from our present knowledge, but. Our, pre- our present knowledge is also a secure base for addressing questions like how mind emerges from matter. Can we build new kinds of minds, quantum computers that that uh, have powerful new capabilities? Can we make new kind of instruments? Can we do? Can we uh, move to a, a sustainable? Uh, uh, industrial pros- process with or the sustainable supply of energy that's large and uh, and doesn't poison the doesn't poison the earth. Uh, can we design new drugs from first principle, or new new catalysts and things from from our knowledge of quantum mechanics, with uh, rather than having to do experiments in smelly laboratories? These these are you know. They, can we? Can we uh, build self-reproducing machines? It's kind of new kinds of engineering that that uh, biology uses, but human engineering hasn't been able to really uh, duplicate. We have, we, you know, there's no excuse. We know how matter works. We should be able to do all these things. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and And I guess that connects to yet another way we could think about this question of finding new orchards, and that is that we need new technologies to be the enabling factor for new discoveries in in much the same way that for example computers enabled yeah. our understanding of confinement in quantum chromodynamics
0: yes that's right i mean there's new ways of understanding the world with the help of our silicon friends and <laughs> maybe other kinds of of uh, uh friends in the future that uh yeah we, we, i mean the uh so I like to say, uh, great answers lead to great questions, lead to even greater questions. We, so when, uh, so you know, we've answered some questions, and, and now we can really pose with a. I mean, you can always pose these questions: How does mind emerge from matter? What was the early universe like? But you know, to, to really pose them sharply in meaningful ways you have to know what you're talking about and have the appropriate tools to address them. And I think it's only now that we really do uh,
1: yeah. have, have, have that. Yeah. Frank, I've got some final questions about, I guess, how you think and how you work because I, I like trying in my in my own modest way to try and learn from really impressive people. And... Mm. The first question is, I understand that you've been teaching yourself machine learning recently and I'd love to know. Yes, I've been,
0: well, I've I've been interested in it for a long time at kind of a, uh, you know, how should I say, an interested amateur level or maybe a beginning graduate student in in the (laughs) subject, but now I'm getting much, I'm getting much more serious in in, uh, uh, acquiring the tools and I'm not sure what I'm going to do with them, but if anything, but, uh, but it's actually quite charming that, uh, in that community, the tools are so widely available there. It's very well documented. You can get, you know, you can get these tools on online, um, you know, Things like TensorFlow and PyTorch—they're out there. You just they're and they're very well documented. The barriers to entry are much lower than than people might think. You just mm. uh, and uh, this this a new style. It's very interesting, and it's a new style of interacting with computers and programming that, in many ways, is more human and more user friendly than uh, than traditional instruct. Uh, instructional instructional programming where you mm. you write do this do that <laughs> in a simplified language this this is it's a little it's it's different it's not it's it's more uh giving examples and uh more like how you would teach a child it's it's fun yeah it, how- and and it's and it's it's a place it's a place going back to our earlier metaphors it's a place where i'm Convinced that not all the low-hanging fruit has been identified, much less plucked, <laughs> right? That, that's,
1: there you go. That's, <laughs> wow. So, so how does Frank Wilczek teach himself machine learning? Do you have like a systematic approach to self-directed learning? And what what sort of like well, books or sources are you consulting?
0: It's system... Well, I could tell you the particular books. I have a pile, but uh, but it's... It's the same way as I learned physics or anything else. I, I talk to people who uh, have more knowledge. <laughs> uh, in this case, I, I've listened to a couple of online courses, uh, and I look at books, and I see which books are good, and in those books I go into deeper. and that, it's, it's not... There's no, it's not uh, it's not arcane, it's a very straightforward <laughs> process of just <laughs> latching on to things, I guess. Uh, what's helpful to me, though, is that having done this kind of thing before, I feel I have a good instinct for finding uh, the, op- you know, where the where, what things where that are not properly understood. I have a lot of confidence and experience that I can find weak points and. Go, go for those and, and that, that, that's what
1: can can you share the, the titles of I mean I, this
0: of... this may be uh, well if I want to get them right I'll have to
1: <laughs> go over here okay so Frank is walking I, to I know his the, I, office <laughs> I'm, well, I'm going to Home actually office. my bathroom where I have this pile oh, okay. of stuff and, uh, <laughs> it's the best so. place to learn machine learning
0: so this well one thing I've really enjoyed this this is from a sort of previous adventures in machine learning is this book by Do- David McKay called Information Theory Inference and Learning Algorithms okay uh, so that that that's that's sort of something that I've read several years ago I'm now rereading it uh, to make sure I have, understand all the details that's a good book but it doesn't doesn't Go to the the latest developments. Then there's this thing, deep learning, uh, by Goodfellow, Bengio and Courville. Mm-hmm. And then there's this kind of notes called reinforcement learning and introduction. This must be the world's longest introduction by <laughs> <laughs> Sutton and Barto. So those are the main. Those are the actual the books I've been. Looking at, but then there are also lots of online resources.
1: And, Great, uh, thanks, Frank.
0: With with with, with pot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've said that your operating function is think, play, repeat. Can you describe yeah. what that looks like in practice?
0: well it doesn't look like anything dramatic i mean it looks like me typing you know typing at my computer and uh, surfing the internet in some way or calculating and interact i do a lot of work with mathematica this computer program that i've Mm -hmm. uh, learned to be pretty fluent with Uh, uh i'm not so fluent yet with python and all its tools but i'm getting there and uh uh, so it doesn't. So that's part of it. The other part of it is uh, is talking to people that uh, you know. I, I do Skype calls with with former students, with uh, with collaborators, with uh, and I, you know, occasionally I, I. I no, occasionally. Uh, a lot of a lot of conferences are archived now, so I can look at those. Uh, but I the thing is that nowadays the, the thing is that there's so much information it's kind of overwhelming. So uh, I consult people whose. Uh, who I trust for to sort of maintain quality control. Mm-hmm. That's actually the hardest part. You can easily waste a lot of time by, by not doing that. So,
1: yeah. What sort of books do you read that aren't about physics?
0: Oh, well, I read all kinds of things. Um, I've even been trying to read more fiction recently. Uh, I read pe- things that people that I stumble into, really. Uh, so I uh, I look at a lot of books and read a few pages, and then if I can find, if I find myself resonating with them, then uh, then I, I go further. Uh, I've also tried to... There are some books I keep coming back to. Bertrand Russell, I keep coming back to uh, History of Western Philosophy and uh, some of his other books. Writings. Uh, I'm a great admirer of Olaf Stapledon, the the pioneering science fiction writer, uh, H.G. Wells, but I also, you know, classics, Shakespeare, uh, Melville, I like Moby Dick. uh, I just read Crime and Punishment again. I guess I had maybe seen it in high school or something. but, Mm -hmm. But I've actually disc. I made a big discovery there, which is kind of a discovery of necessity, but turned out to be really important in enjoying uh, these things. Is that I shouldn't? I should only try to read maybe a chapter a day or something like that, because then I enjoy it. If I if I try to Mm -hmm. do a lot, then I, then I think, well, you know. I really should be doing something else, <laughs> and uh, yeah. that's one thing. And the other thing is, the, these rich texts—they take a while to absorb, to really, you know, to come to terms with the characters and the situations, and imagine it. Uh, so, trying to read too fast—I think, uh, I, at least for me—I lose it if I, if I don't have time to interact with. with
1: uh, How do you think about balancing humility and self- respect
0: <laughs> well uh, I don't think much about it except that it's something that happens <laughs> there are plenty plenty of occasions for humility as you think about the universe uh, and also you know at a more at a less uh, exalted level if if you try to do hard problems as I often do I fail a lot you know so so humility or, or you know if I wanted a lesson if I want a lesson in humility I can uh, I can go back and, and look at the Principia <laughs> Newton's work or you know that the, you know the, there are levels of human achievement that are just awesome and uh, yeah, it's a lesson in humility that no i haven't done that so all right <laughs> uh the self uh, self respect well i get i get a lot of positive feedback so that's and uh also i think it goes back to my uh, early school years and ever since i've gotten gotten a lot of feedback positive feedback so self respect comes comes naturally uh and uh you know, my, my ego is very secure, <laughs> but uh, the uh, uh, but also you know, but, but also learning, and this this really came especially most out of um, out of writing fundamentals and thinking about it is just what an extraordinary thing it is to be a a thinking human being with just what an extraordinary thing it, it is that, that such a thing can emerge from matter and how much has to go into it and how billions of years to evolve in this organized complexity. And, uh, it's just awesome. And to think that that's me or that's, you know, that's us.
1: Hmm.
0: Is, 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 It's not all humility. We should have self-respect too because we're we're remarkable creations.
1: Frank Wulczek, I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me.
0: Yeah, well, thanks. It was fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. You can find episodes, transcripts, and show notes at thejsp.com. If you enjoyed this episode with Frank Wilczek, you might also enjoy episode number 48 with physicist Leonard Susskind or episode number 98 with cosmologist Avi Loeb. The audio editor for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our incredibly thirsty video editor is Alf Eddie. I'm Joe Walker. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ciao.